see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ready for Close-Up. My name is Andy and I'm here with Sam again. Hello, Sam. Hi, Andy. Today we're going to talk about the greatest movies of all time with a large question mark. Why do we need this classification of greatest movies, best of movies? Today we're going to talk about our personal favorites, best of lists, which one do we use, why do we consult them? We're going to have a look at the best of lists from the British Film Institute and the American Film Institute and we will have a closer look on their respective number ones, Citizen Kane and Vertigo. We're wrapping up the podcast today with our personal best of recommendations. Yeah, I think let's just dive into it. Sam, do you have a favorite movie of all time? Well, I do and I don't. There is a cluster of favorites that I have. Like, I have favorite Hitchcock movies, I have favorite Bond movies, Woody Allen, Polanski. For me, it's difficult because I kind of need to make a difference between what are my classic favorites, then I have some, you know, cult favorites, guilty pleasures, and then, of course, I have also some favorites among more recent movies. So that's the long answer. But if you ask me for, let's say, one specific movie, it would have to be a Hitchcock and it's probably Vertigo. But we'll talk about that later. What about you? Do you have a favorite? I would rather also say, like you, there is a cluster of different movies that I like that have become favorites also over time. I think there's also a difference between a favorite movie and a best of movie. Because when people ask you what is the best movie ever, it's really difficult to pin that down because it's a very, a very subjective and a very personal answer always. I would say I have a cluster of movies that include Casablanca, All About Eve, Gone with the Wind, the Indiana Jones movie. I, I don't know, I think there's really a mix of classics, guilty pleasures, and also more recent ones that are lining up to become favorites. So rather than saying a best of movie, I would say there are a number of favorites. So, but there's still a lot of those best of lists around. What about those? Why do we need these best of lists and why are they so popular? And people are really, they're always like, okay, this is the ultimate list of best of movies. And this is the best, greatest, biggest movie of all time. And I think the interesting part to me is always when you have lists, people never agree completely. There's always someone that says, okay, this movie was left out. Why is this not higher? This one should be higher than the other one. And I think this is part of this fascination about movies. Journalists, critics, film fanatics, film historians, they set up lists and they throw it out there to discuss. And I think also people need that in a sense because it really, it gives you a sense of orientation and you really need some guidance and some direction on which movies you want to watch. For me, it's always a little bit difficult to, to say this is the ultimate best of movies list. I prefer lists that have these genre classifications like it's the best of film noir, the best movies of the 70s, or we ranked all the, the Bond movies, the Almodovar movies, the Hitchcock movies, you name it. So I think there you really get this guidance. I consult lists to discover new, new movies I haven't seen yet or to widen the horizon, really. I've started consulting the Internet Movie Database, IMDb, very early. It's been around since 
1990 already and by now of course it's heavily linked to Amazon so I always use this for orientation like you said like best 80s movies or best horror movies and of course there's more the more prestigious ones the AFI has been around since the 1960s the American Film Institute and the British Film Institute already since 1933. And they've made these best of lists every 10 years. And they always make headlines because they are seen as the prestigious critic lists. I also consult Rotten Tomatoes, a web resource that's been around since the late 1990s. And I somehow piece together these impressions, you know, from audiences' favorites and critics' favorites. And we always, on the one hand, find out what we still have to see, still want to see, but also how subjective it is. And I also noticed I have still some, some books around. There's also the 1001 movies you need to see before you die. Absolutely, yeah. Could you say, what do you consider a good best-of list? A good best-of list? should be kind of controversial. It should make like bold statements and add new entries every once in a while, not be too set in stone. And it should not only be a list of, let's say, blockbusters or how many um, people have cast their votes, but it should be kind of a, a mix between what audiences like and what critics like. And I think a true best of list should somehow consider the films that are just the best elements of filmmaking, you know, that make some kind of full impact because of the subject matter that they show or the conversation that they started or let's say the ultimate treatment of one issue, a movie that was hugely influential that somehow changed the game of either filmmaking or the conversation about a certain topic. So <laughs> I was thinking, I mean, I, I loved Titanic, for instance, when it came out, even though many people thought it was a cheesy movie and it's a cheesy movie, but at the same time, it also changed the conversation on how a blockbuster is made and movies since then have been different so that would be a favorite because of what it did to filmmaking. Titanic has been a very generational movie as well I don't think we have those anymore or not so regular anymore where really from the grandmother to the to the grandchild everyone storms to see these movies. Best of lists they should also be educational so they shouldn't be crowd pleasers but as you said they should have a controversial edge to it or they should propose movies that potentially are forgotten or less in the spotlight or they grow over years in, in, in terms of potential. I think we also review and view movies differently than we might have 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. So I think this is also something we maybe will talk about later when we talk about Vertigo, that movies also grow over time in respect and, and value that we realize, oh, okay, this was actually very visionary and it has influenced so many filmmakers after that. Whereas at the time, of release it probably wasn't really understood as I said initially there's always a debate around it and I think this is what what it makes so interesting I think we will look now at two of the most prestigious ones from the British Film Institute and the American Film Institute and as you mentioned before the British Film Institute every 10 years critics choose the best of movies maybe we go through this list first from the British Film Institute what is the top 10 list of the British Film Institute then on number 10 we have Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. Number nine, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Number eight, Man with the Movie Camera, a movie from the Soviet Union from the 20s. Number seven is The Searcher, a Western by John Ford. Number six, 2001, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Number five, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. A 
another silent movie. Number four, La Règle du Jeu. Number three, Tokyo Story, a Japanese movie from the 40s. Number two, Citizen Kane. And number one, Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. That was pretty spectacular. I remember when they changed their number one recently, right? It was because Citizen Kane was from 1962 until 2002, the number one of the BFI list. And in 2012, obviously, when they changed it and the Vertigo became number one, this was quite a, not a scandal, but it was quite a, an impact, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about the American Film Institute's top 10? Number 10, The Wizard of Oz. Number nine, Vertigo. Number eight, Schindler's List by Steven Spielberg. Number seven, Lawrence of Arabia. Number six, Gone with the Wind, the Civil War drama with uh, Vivian Lee and Clark Gable. Number five, Singing in the Rain, the movie musical. Number four, Raging Bull by Martin Scorsese. Number three, Casablanca by Michael Curtis with Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. Number two, The Godfather. And number one, Citizen Kane by Orson Welles. I think when we look at these two lists, it's I've seen nine out of ten movies from the AFI and I think three from the BFI. So there is a, a quite a difference in terms of movie selection and also ranking. We have to say that the American Film Institute is only looking at US American movie productions, whereas the BFI is on a more international scale and also looks really on world cinema and the global movie productions. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I also notice that there's an interesting difference of the international quality of those two lists. The British Film Institute really makes a point of focusing on international movies, but then really old ones. I mean, the, the newest one is from 1968. Looking at the American Film Institute, this obviously is more really American cinema. And I had the same, like you, I also saw three from the first list. And except for Raging Bull, I've seen all of the ones from the American Film Institute as well. So obviously their goals are different. And and looking up and how those institutes came about, I also noticed that it was President Johnson in 1965 who created the American Film Institute. So the goal was clearly to strengthen American cinema. That's why the list is focusing on that. And the British Film Institute has so many different lists that focus on British cinema as well. But then the international one, I think, is, is consciously international whereas the American Film Institute has all those sub lists as well you know best horror movies and best movie musicals and best film quotes and so on so they are much more invested in American cinema and the British Film Institute has a more open focus in terms of international cinema from my perspective the British Film Institute the list I think it's more for historians in a way or very cinephile I don't know who if you say okay this silent movie from the Soviet Union from 1924 is the best movie of all time that many moviegoers these days would agree I think it must be a conscious choice to go for these rather unknown or rather forgotten movies none of them is an easy watch all of them are difficult movies to watch whereas there's still a couple of crowd pleasers in in the American Film Institute. You can still watch Godfather and Singing in the Rain, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz and so on. Absolutely. I think it's also a nice discussion on what is still entertaining and also what is still available and what is canon. So what do you put in a list that you say, okay, this is worth more than others or this is something we still want to continue carrying on as a great movie. And I think in that respect, they're, they're quite different. I think we should look at the two number ones of these two lists. Uh, We have in the British Film Institute Vertigo and in the American Film Institute we have Citizen Kane still on top. 
Sam, you want to walk us through a little bit about Vertigo, what's it about, and why do you think it deserved the, the number one spot? And don't you tell me. Will you love me? Yes. Well, I have to admit that because Vertigo is also my personal favorite, probably of all time, I'm not going to be objective at all, <laughs> but I'm going to give a few impressions why I think it deserves to be number one and why I think it's still on the list and why it's still moving up on the list. So Vertigo is the 1958 thriller drama by Alfred Hitchcock. It wasn't a success at the time, starring Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak, a mystery surrounding a retired police officer with high anxiety who is asked to go investigate an old friend's wife who seems to be in some kind of touch with her past and he's suicidal at the same time. And then he gets involved with her, falls in love, but she dies horribly falling from a tower and then he has to grapple with the aftermath of that. Vertigo is a pretty perfect example of Hitchcock's movie art and is also really a perfect match, in my opinion, of a, an intriguing plot. Some would say a little bit lengthy, a little bit too convoluted, but still works out, I think. And of course, it's a great watch because of its VistaVision camera work, perfect editing, the use of color, the perfect use of music by Bernard Herrmann. But then it's also open to a lot of discussions among film students. You can analyze pretty much every scene. And it's also sparked some controversies on the main characters, misuse of women in the film. That's why I think it deserves to be the best Hitchcock film. And in a way, it also deserves to be the best example of filmmaking in general. So what about you, Andy? You rewatched Citizen Kane for this podcast, the AFI's number one movie of all time. What did you think of it? I can see why it's considered a great movie. I'm not personally quite sure if it's the best movie of all time, but it's definitely great. It was Orson Welles' first movie as a director, actor, writer, and I think even producer. So it's also considered one of the first American film d'auteur, like these really author movies. And I think it was well ahead of time because it has had many great technical aspects. Before I go into that, just really briefly, Citizen Kane is a life story of a publishing tycoon closely based on Randolph Hearst, the actual publishing tycoon in the 20s and 30s. It follows the life of this mysterious publisher who's incredibly wealthy and it tells the story from different views of people who were in his life, his ex-wife, his best friend, his um, publishing friend. The movie actually starts with the death of Citizen Kane and the red thread is a journalist who's trying to find out why does the famous last word of Charles Foster Kane mean and this is this mysterious red thread that goes through the whole movie and this journalist is similar to the audience is trying to find out what does Rosebud mean. It's told in back flashes, it's not chronological. We have these unreliable narrators because they are old now and they recount what happened 30, 40 years ago. A really interesting structure narratively, but also technically I think this is why the movie is still considered such an important milestone because there are 
there, the camera angles, which are very unusual at Forza for the time. He uses high angles and low angles, so basically the camera is at the feet of people and looking up or he's looking down on actors. He used this deep focus cinematography where you have, let's say, three different people standing in the room, but they all are in sharp focus, which creates these beautiful, beautiful pictures. And then also the special effects used in this movie. The actors really play from a young age up until they're old, the same character and, and the aging makeup for that time was clearly sensational. When we look at it today, it might not be as revolutionary, but you can still see this undeniably great craftsmanship in it. I think it was fantastically influential if you look at the impact it's had over the years. The movie still feels very modern, it's still very fresh, and it also introduced a lot of great actors who were new to movies, such as Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead, who were in the theatre company of Orson Welles before. And there's one connecting element to those movies, which of course is also really important to me. Both films were scored by Bernard Herrmann. And it was also uh, Herrmann's first movie soundtrack that he made for Citizen Kane, and it was nominated for the Oscar and started his career. And then in Vertigo, he's really at the top of his game doing one of the many Hitchcock soundtracks he did. Do you think it's the best movie? I admire a lot in it. Let's say the, the sharp camera work that you mentioned, this puzzling together and the reconstruction of Kane's life. And then there's a lot of quirky, fun scenes. There's a couple of overwhelming moments like this opera scene. I also love the, the whole Rosebud mystery and revelation at the end, which has become so famous from this movie. Rosebud. It's completely unique, but let's say I'm much more moved and touched and impressed by Vertigo personally. It does something to me each time I watch it and it's kind of evolved over time, the points of interest that I have in it. What about you and Vertigo? I mean, I like Vertigo. It's also definitely one of my favorite films of all time. And if I had to choose between the two, I would also favor Vertigo because I think every time you watch it, you get a new reading out of it. As you mentioned before, you can interpret so many scenes in there. There's also a lot of sexual tensions in this movie. It's very psychosexual, which is interesting because I think you somehow only realized is after the third watching. I think both movies are on the surface relatively cold, but I think underneath the surface, Vertigo is really boiling. And I think this is this really nice paradox of that movie, which makes it so fascinating. Whereas Citizen Kane, similar to you, I appreciate it for technical achievements. It's entertaining to watch. It doesn't interest me that much on a, on a personal note. And just the fact that it's been controversial is also a plus for Vertigo. For me, it's kind of stayed at the top, even though, for instance, I think that Hitchcock's Year of Window and Psycho are almost more perfect movies for different reasons. And I think with, with Vertigo, everything comes together for me. It, it's Hitchcock, it's Herman, it's San Francisco. For me, I still consider it the perfect example for film analysis. You can take these scenes, you can analyze them down to the last shot and even though I think Rear Window is probably the perfect film about cinema. I still come back to Vertigo again and again and I've seen it so many times. I even went to movie soundtrack concerts a couple of times so definitely looking at my track record I would have to say Vertigo, Vertigo, Vertigo.
<laughs> that's a great wrap up of that section, I would say. Maybe let's discuss a little bit recent favorites. Do you have recent favorites and do you think they will also prevail? I'm gonna give a similar answer to what I said at the beginning. On the one hand, I'm focused on a couple of directors that I am interested in. Let's say Olivier Assayas and Paolo Sorrentino and Luca Guadagnino. They released a few movies that I thought had the potential of becoming classics great or favorite movies, but of course only time will tell. And then I also think movies will have to do something that will have to somehow influence the conversation in society or in politics. So I've watched a lot of those movies related to the present Black Lives Matter protests, you know, like Hidden Figures and Selma and Lincoln that somehow give you the historical background to this conversation going on at the moment. So I think the favorite and best movies will again be the ones that somehow transform society or that change the conversation, change the outlook on something. And I think that's not only going to be cinema, but it's also going to be platforms like Netflix and others. In a way, they can both reflect and trigger change in society. I think we should also have a look at what happens in international cinema. Because if you look at recent years, just the last best movie at the Oscars, Parasite from South Korea, I think what's interesting is that they, in a way, create a new form of cinema, putting together different genres and creating something completely new that is hard to define. And I've seen a couple of those movies. Parasite was one, Holy Motors by Leon Carax was another, Olivia Assayas does the same with, let's say, films like Personal Shopper and The Clouds of Sils Maria. They create something new, they use techniques from cinema from the past, and they make references to old masters and classics, but they use cinema in a new way. So I think those will be the masters and the best movies of the future. You mentioned Parasite, which was clearly highly successful and really a game changer also. And I think that in this respect, movies will also become more international. So I think we will move away from this dominance of US American movies. I think in recent years, it's fair to say they produce mostly super hero movies and like these big tentpole movies that are intended to make money and we have the small independent movie industry on the side in the US but I think that really now we see the search of other movie nations that are as you mentioned bringing in different aspects mixing genres and creating something new and exciting which then is trailblazing for a new generation and I think the Korean cinema right now is actually very strong in that respect I, I also think for me personally they are definitely favorites I have recently. I think Yorgos Lantimos, the Greek director, has done a short but very creative and original output. Denis Villeneuve, I think he made great science fiction movies with Blade Runner 2049 or Arrival. And I think these are directors that are pushing the boundaries a little bit further. Not to mention Christopher Nolan, which I think in my eyes is really the one who has been highly influential in creating new visual conventions. It's a little bit difficult to say who will be regarded in 50 years from now a classic and if it will still be Vertigo on Citizen Kane or if we will move forward. I think it's similar to the discussion we had last week about movie theaters and the future of cinema, that the medium has also changed a bit and movies are very often also a product, even more so to pop up on streams and sites and 50 years ago it was really a work of art. So I think this is also something that potentially changes the way we will evaluate future movies. So Andy, what's our final recommendation then on people listening and trying to figure out what the best movies of all time are? 
go and consult this list, go and check out AFI and the BFI and go on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes and get informed. I think there's so much great content out there. There's so many great movies. And I think best of lists can just be really this guidance, how you can get inspired and you pick out the things you like and you create your own best of list. Speaking of best of and favorites, can I make a final shout out? Of course. Yesterday, one of my favorite film composers, Ennio Morricone, passed away in Rome at 91 years old after having scored more than 500 different movies. If I think of Once Upon a Time in the West, also at least one of my favorites, if not more. So I'd like to dedicate this best of episode to Ennio Morricone, if I may. You can create a best of list of his best scored movies. I might make that my next video, who knows? So pleasure talking to you, Andy, as usual, and talk to you next time. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in next time when we're ready for close-up. God have mercy.